Hey everyone, after more than 15 years in the business, I finally got a book published. If you want to do me the biggest favor in the whole world, please head over to MikeyOp.com and buy a copy. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com, and the book is named Martyr, and it's about psychics and the history and future of the universe. I wrote it, and I think you'll love it. Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with The Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming to us from New York City, is Edward Miskey, and he's celebrating 10 years as a sole survivor of a rare cancer with the publishing of his book, Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronicle Illnesses. For the last 17 years, Edward has lived in New York City as a writer, producer, and performer, but these ventures have taken him all over the country and the world, and he is the co-producer of the forthcoming film Ladylike, which will be out in 2024. Edward, how are you doing? I am doing just great. How are you doing? Uh, Very good, actually. It's uh, really nice weather out here in Arizona. Yeah, love that dry desert Arizona situation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, our first question we always ask, I guess, is related to this, which is, where did you grow up? How old are you? And what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? Um, I'm from central Pennsylvania. I am 36 years old, and I'm a proud millennial. Awesome. Uh, Which part of central PA? I went to Pitt. That's why I'm asking. Oh, cool. My dad went to Pitt. Yeah, um, so not... Not quite that far out. Um, we're like more central, like the Hershey Lancaster area. New York City, probably a little better than where you grew up. I mean, that's why I left. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't wait to get out of there. I literally, um, I graduated high school May 27th and June 1st, my lease started in New York. And I was like, bye. <laughs> that's awesome. That is a, that's a pretty normal story, I think. And I, I, that's part of the appeal and charm of New York City is it's just a collection of people who want to be in New York City or not wherever they were. Um, and I like that combo. So you've been there ever since. Yeah, haven't left. Uh, it's going to be 18 years in June, which is horrifying to think about. <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, yeah, I can tell you because I'm 41, so I'm five years older than you. It just gets worse. <laughs> like everything is further and further away. And all of a sudden people are talking about like the decade you grew up in as if it was like to us, the 1950s. No, for real though. And like, I had the realization a couple months ago that I am, I've now lived in New York just as long as I lived in Pennsylvania growing up and that I am closer to the age my parents were when I moved here than I am to the age I was when I moved here. That's a lot of intersections of pacing and aging. Wow. So I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of things that most people would hate, uh, I'm going to ham this segue in. What rare cancer were you diagnosed with? And can you give us the briefest yet most you know necessary version of that story so we can kind of go from there sure so i was diagnosed with rare and large b cell burkitt's like non hodgkin's lymphoma which is a mouthful and it was it was also a, a tumor full as well um it was weird i was doing a show out in, in nevada i was doing hairspray and i just had this lump appear under my arm and it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, uh, you know, being stubborn, I was like, I'm not going to do anything about this until this contract is over. And so once it was done and I came back to New York, this thing was about the size of a grapefruit-ish. Wow. And, um, yeah, I went to the, my doctor who sent me to the hospital for a biopsy. And then from there, I just like, I, I think like a week later or so, I was in chemo and in treatment. My gosh. I mean, that's wow. And so how old were you? You were like 26 I was 24 when the tumor showed up, and then I was—I had a—I had a birthday, and then I was 25 when I started treatment. Got it. And what was like? Um, I know this is like a weird question to ask, but this happened to me once. Um, what was your mood like 
right before the first doctor came in and said, you have been diagnosed with cancer. And what was the moment like when you heard those words and then after? Well, okay. So this, this is a couple different stages. So when the, when the lump first appeared, it was like July, um, June or July. And I went to my doctor and he was like, huh, I don't know what this is. Um, and so he sent me to a CAT scan, which, you know, with the precursor of this could be Hodgkin's. And so I was like, well, I don't love that. And I went to this CAT scan and the CAT scan went back to him and he said it was more in line with an infection and it looks like cat scratch fever, which I don't like, that's not a real disease. Like, <laughs> stop it. Um, and so he put me on a bunch of antibiotics and like sent me on my way. And so I was taking these drugs he gave me while I was out in Nevada and, you know, it just kept growing. And so by the time I came back to the city, knowing full well that something was wrong, um, because like my skin was all stretched out. I had stretch marks and they were all red. And like, it was because this huge tumor under my arm, um, that kept growing and like, obviously something had to be done. I didn't know if it was surgery or something else. I didn't really know. I think I was in denial a little bit. Um, but when I went to see him again, he was like, well, this is definitely something. And he, he was so baffled by the fact that like, I felt great. I looked great and nothing else seemed off. Hmm. so we were all very confused he sent me to a hospital i had this needle biopsy where they took all these samples out of the tumor directly you know and then and then that was that and they just kind of i don't remember if they called me or they told me in person what was going on uh but it became very evident very fast that it was rare and dangerous and aggressive and i didn't have a whole lot of time to do something about it and, um, you know, that was made more complicated by the insurance companies and medical system and everything else and all that, all that crap uh, that centers around that. But, you know, it was I think it was too much of a whirlwind for me to really have any feelings about it. It wasn't really until that first day that I was checking into the hospital before everything started that like a nurse handed me a gown and I went into a room to change and I had a full meltdown um, in that room, just like crying and screaming and angry and scared and, and all the feelings. And it was just basically like five months of this pent up, like question mark of, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, just all coming out at once. Wow. I mean, that's very, very well explained. And, um, you know, this, this is a show about death and facing death. So obviously you're like a prime candidate and, and the way you're explaining it really helps me, see like the purpose and what we're trying to do here, which is uh, how much had you thought about death before all that? And how much did you think about it? And were you fearful or were you like, I mean, you already said you went through anger. You, you described a lot of the emotions, but specifically with the idea of death, how was that dancing in your head? If at all? Well, I mean, I, I don't like ever since I was a kid for some, whatever reason, I always felt like I was going to die young and I never knew why. I really didn't. And it was just this thing. I've always had this like sense of urgency where I have, I have to do something. I have to do some kind of, I have to have a big life. I have to accomplish big things and make a mark because I'm not going to be here very long. And I don't have that sense anymore per se, but it was always this weird feeling of like, I don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of time. Wow. And so when I got to this point, it just was like after after like all of the emotions of like being angry that this was happening and scared that it was happening and what is going to happen to my life i kind of got into this place of like 
of course this is happening to me. Like, of all the ridiculous things in my life to happen, like, this is the thing that makes sense that this happened to me. Um, and that's not to be confused with, like, this narrative of, like, I deserved it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like that happens a lot within the cancer community. But, like, it, it just was kind of this weird, peaceful thing because it was almost like I expected it. Wow. For whatever reason. I don't, I can't explain that. I don't know what that was. But, you know, I've always kind of had, I guess, like a morbid leaning towards the idea of death. Not that I've ever had like infantilizations of, you know, like death and dying and any, anything else. But, you know, I, I had to kind of face death very early. You know, like we had my sisters and I and the community that we lived in, we had a lot of very sad, tragic, way too soon deaths happen within our friend circle from the time I was probably 13 until I was 20. Oh, wow. Um, it kind of felt like one every year, like one, like friends died in car accidents or overdoses or suicide or, or wow. you know, so we were teenagers growing up with like losing friends was normal. And like, you know, moving to the city, like, I carried that with me because, and I was almost afraid to make friends at one point because it was like, I'm bad luck. Everyone I make friends with dies. Wow. And, you know, I was a hot topic kid. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's self-explanatory. <laughs> I'm like, was obsessed with Nightmare, Nightmare Before Christmas. So like the, the death laterals that happened there, you know, kind of play into this too. But, um, you know, it was a really weird feeling of of just kind of accepting that like this is the thing that was going to happen to me and i've been dealing with loss and death for such a long period of time that like me having this diagnosis like totally made sense to me so i was like yeah of course and there were times where we had complications and i was irresponsible and i did all the things in a self-sabotaging kind of way to make sure that i didn't live through this situation wow uh and and did anyway despite my efforts but you know (laughs) one of them was that i went i went to the ocean to visit my sister down in florida and i got a parasite wow um you know because i had i had no immune system and was swimming in the filthy ocean like whose idea was that um it's me i'm the problem it's me and like (laughs) I came back and just was hospitalized and my doctor screamed at me. She was like, what are you doing? And rightfully so. And I did have a moment where I was like, what if this is it? Like, what if this is the stupid thing that kills me and it's not cancer? It's some stupid parasite from the ocean that I got. <laughs> I got myself, you know, like, cause, cause I think that's kind of the backward sense of morbid morbidity that I have. Um, yeah, where it's like, you know, like, okay, I have cancer, but the thing that is going to kill me is this stupid parasite that I got because I was stubborn and wanted to go to the beach. (laughs) Yeah, I, I can totally understand that pathology. And I definitely can identify with a lot of it. I guess it's actually the perfect time to ask the only other standard question on the show, which is what do you think happens when you die? So uh, when you were in those moments, and when you were thinking about that parasite killing you, what what do you think would happen to you specifically when you die? You know, I I'm not one to really become indoctrinated on conspiracy theories or anything, but I do find them interesting and entertaining and, and like happy to listen to them and whatever. And I think death kind of falls under the guise of conspiracy theories because that's all we have. Every, every idea that we have of death and what happens afterwards is a conspiracy theory because no one knows the truth. Like it's, we just don't. So 
whether you like going to heaven, conspiracy theory, reincarnation, conspiracy theory, like whatever your belief is, is a conspiracy theory. And so for me, I just kind of pick the one that is the most entertaining to me. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of like the idea that your energy or whatever you want to call it comes back as a different person to learn something else. Uh, because I, I think that's the, I think that's the most fun one, you know, like life is great. Earth is wonderful. The thing that ruins it is people. <laughs> you get to reincarnate and become something else and learn and do something more and maybe contribute something better and more than you did in the life that you currently have. Oh, man. Uh, first of all, this is like episode 120 something, and I've never heard that answer. So props to you. That's really cool. Um, and I have always well, been a huge you. fan. <laughs> yeah. Of the like, you know, it's called a conspiracy theory because people conspire. That's where the word comes from. It does happen. It happens in front of you all the time and it happens behind your back and in closed rooms and in open rooms. And so I love it and I totally agree. And then uh, I like that you picked the one that that gels the most within that one that you picked that you gelled. If I could like push you a little further in the in the narrative of it. um, What is the thing that is learning like is there a permanent thing that learns as edward and then this other permanent the same permanent thing will learn when that energy becomes something else um i think i think the answer that's coming to me in the most immediate is that like you know i think organized religions uh you know christianity buddhism etc kind of explain this as becoming sinless or be or reaching nirvana or whatever and i don't think that that's necessarily a state that you experience i think that each life that we are reincarnated into if that is even a thing that happens is a level of achievement towards that so that means that you're living a life that is of servitude and and contribution to the greater picture of the of the universe and the world as a whole and so like maybe you don't achieve that totally in this life but maybe you do in the next one or maybe each life that you lead is a piece of the puzzle to achieving that and so your energy that has gone through all of these different lives in the end is really the bigger is really a piece of a bigger puzzle that's cool and do you think that energy has like its own consciousness the same way you and I perceive that we each have our own independent consciousness i hope so because then my puzzle theory is kind of shot to death, isn't it? <laughs> well, no, it's not. You know, I press everyone the same way because I'm curious. I started, you know, this podcast for a million and one reasons, but as it goes on and on, I'm just obsessed with collecting everyone's stories. They're so fascinating to me. And and um, and yours is, is particularly interesting because it's, it really is. It's like a, it's a sampling of, of like the most scientific explanations all here. And then also like with some of the, you know, the reincarnation reiteration theories that come in. And, and I like that because personally that would be the narrative I would pick. And I kind of also like the idea of, of viewing like the energy or whatever you want to call that form of consciousness as like a suitcase. Mm-hmm. And then every life that you have, you put something else Ooh. in that suitcase. That's cool. And then like, and then like you move on to the next version of whatever life you live and you put something else in that suitcase. And like you, that, that through line of energy is just carrying the suitcase along until it's full. Uh-huh. And then when it's full, maybe that goes away or maybe it ends or maybe it never ends. And you know, there's, I, I, there's no way to ever be able to articulate this or know for sure until it happens. And by then it's too late. Yeah. That's, that's also key. I think, which is why I love your conspiracy theory. It's like, we're all conspiring here on earth to pretend we know the thing that and everyone's gonna know but you don't report it back so yeah and uh you made me laugh pretty heartily when you said you know 
people are the reason Earth's not the most pleasant place ever, because obviously I agree, and I think most people do, and it comes down to it. But obviously that could change the second people change. So I am curious, do you believe that if you do nothing but like selfishness and uh, if you pursue a life of selfishness and you don't really do much good for other people, do you think there's like a punishment or a system for how you would be like your energy would be used? Or do you think it's all just whatever you want to do? I don't necessarily think that it's whatever you want to do. I think that it, and I don't think that it's a choice in the same way that we have choices here. Like I choose to brush my teeth. I choose to take a shower. I choose to eat and take care of myself, et cetera. I think it's more so that, um, you know, if you do lead a, a, a life that is selfish and not service oriented and, and contributing oriented in, in a positive way, that I don't, I don't want to say that there's like punishment to it, but I think it's going back into a, a life that might be the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. So that the, the thing that is animating your body or whatever learns that lesson. That makes sense to me. So like, I'm not going to ask for specifics. You, of course, can volunteer if you feel like it. But when someone in your life who was important to you did something harmful to you, just pick one if you have one, I'm assuming. Um, were you able to use this philosophy to, like, talk your way through that experience? Like, if you've been betrayed or hurt or something, uh, do you do you ever apply this in situations that are tough? I don't think in the way that we're talking about. I think in a different way. And I think the way is that, you know, taking a... a a second to take to step back and look at the situation for what it is and so you know the the one the narrative that i end up talking about a lot is that during my cancer experience one of my best friends stopped talking to me the second i told him i had cancer oh my god and then i had a boyfriend who broke up with me during the worst part of treatment oh my god and edward i'm so sorry no wow. it's the best thing that ever happened to me i'm not okay. kidding um because because, and I will, I will say because of, of what I'm about to say is exactly the point I'm trying to make, is that it took me years to realize this, but those people were just not equipped to be in my life. And they were not equipped to be around me. They were not equipped to take care of me. They were not equipped to be part of my story. And they are by proxy because once upon a time they were in my story, uh, but they are not now because they don't belong there. And so it's kind of this idea that, you know, if, if a person does something to you that is not great or, or harms you in a way and puts you through some kind of traumatic experience, you know, do you apply this philosophy of their, their learning? Yes, because those people were not equipped to maneuver in that circumstance the way that I would have liked them to but they were maneuvering in a way that they knew how with where they were at in that moment. Yeah. Wow. That was very deep and very mature. And, and also especially uplifting for me to hear, because I think this is exactly the turn everyone needs to take when something seems to turn against you. And even if it takes a long time to process and get there, it's so cool to hear you say it and to hear you say it with like, uh, not like you weren't like jovial, but you, you certainly are not attached and angry about it. Um, and so that's really cool. And actually, um, my, uh, going back to like one of the first questions I asked you, when you mentioned the cancer community, I've heard that reference before, but I've never actually thought to ask someone like, what is the cancer community? Is it people who survive people who are in treatment? Like, how would you explain that? And do you like talk to people? 
Hey, everybody. I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to MikeYop.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up today. So this is kind of like um, a new-ish thing for me right like i knew that this existed but i never really participated in it um there is a group called stupid cancer that runs this thing called cancer con and it's just like any other con like comic con or whatever else and they have it's happening right now and they have different webinars that happen where there are different speakers and and whatnot and it's a much younger crowd than i anticipated i was just on a call um on one of their webinars last night And it was kind of great because I avoided support groups and cancer community in that sense while I was still in the thick of it and while I was coming out of it. Because the one thing I did not want to do was sit around and wallow in in sadness and talk about my feelings and my fear and everything else. I wanted to take it head on. I wanted to get through it, be done with it, and move on with my life. And of course, it's not that simple. And obviously, that is not what happened. But that's what I wanted in the moment. Now, 10 years out in hindsight, would it have benefited me? Maybe. But last night, literally yesterday, um, on this webinar, there were people offering information and the way that they felt and the way that they were feeling who are less out of the cancer experience than I am, who were saying exactly the things of why I wrote my book. And so it was like this really exciting, like validating moment where it was like, oh, I wasn't losing it. Uh-huh. These are real feelings that everyone is feeling. In short, to like answer your question, like the cancer community, I don't really know how to comment on it because I'm still new to it. I was very much like within and I'm I'm like this in real life anyway, but like I'm very much about creating a community instead of like glomming onto someone else's and you know, I can kind of say that to like the gay community, which I am also a part of, um, the LGBT community as a whole, you know, like, do I belong to it? Yes. Is it something I actively participate in from a cultural social standpoint? Not really, but I have created my own community that also include others from that community. And so for for me, the conversation of like the cancer community is very similar, where it's like, do I belong to that community because of what happened to me? Absolutely. Do I socially interact and maneuver within that community in a like active and participatory way? Not really. Are there people within my own personal community that have experienced cancer or have been like in proximity to it? Yes. So it's kind of the same thing, but I'm I'm all about building your own community and not necessarily just like assimilating into another one. Wow, that's so interesting, and I, I really identify with you. Like this whole like you can be in a group or a group can try to claim you, and then there's like friction sometimes, or like you want to identify with like part of a movement but not all of it. And um, but with the cancer and the helping people, you know, it, it just sounds a lot a lot uh, easier for me to wrap my head around. And then I did want to ask you a lot of questions about your book. So I'm glad you brought it up, but can you get into, um, you kind of got into why you wrote it, but can you get into the process of writing it and how that's been for you? And has it been therapeutic? And if you want to sell the book as well, please, 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 by all means. 
Um, therapeutic. It's kind of the opposite of therapeutic, Ooh. to be honest. I think it, I think in the beginning, um, the way that I wrote it was just like a giant brain dump mm-hmm. and just getting everything that I wanted to say out. Yeah. And then going back and like cutting it apart and getting rid of things that didn't belong there and really streamlining the story to a very specific, you know, period. Um, and then there was, you know, zhuzhing it up and making it, you know, musical theater and, and all that. Um, that was, that was really hard. It was hard work because it was like in hindsight and then reliving some of those things. Um, and then also like with the audiobook component of it, which is not done yet, I'm so dragging my feet on this, but I think this is kind of why, because reading some of these chapters back is also really hard. And some of it is stuff that I thought I had dealt with. And some of it is like subject matter that I thought I had put to bed and I was cool with. And then like reading through some of these chapters, like I get like angry or like have X emotion that is not like something I expected. I just thought, you know, I'm good. Like that, that's the thing that happened. It's part of my story. It's part of my life, but it's not my identity. And then I get into this booth with a microphone in front of me reading these words that I wrote. And I'm like, ah, no. <laughs> wow. That's so interesting. I was not expecting to hear that answer at all. And then, and I'm actually really glad I asked because I think people should think a lot about that. Like that there's like a dual process to like, the attempt at therapy almost. And then also you have to relive something. Um, but you know, all's well that ends well, you are celebrating 10 years as the survivor and you have written and published this book. And, uh, I hope that our audience checks it out. Um, there'll be place in the notes to find you and all that. Um, real quick before we go, uh, what's lady like about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. So this is my friend, Taylor, Taylor Coriel. She's a brilliant writer. Um, brilliant director, just what what a talent. Um, and she wrote this uh, buddy comedy based on a true event that happened with Sarah Bernhardt, who is a very, very famous actress at the turn of the century. And she toured the country doing Shakespeare. She was like Beyonce, Meryl Streep of her time, uh-huh. if you will. Yeah. And so the event that happened is that... Um, she wanted to go to the Players Club in New York City because Edwin Booth, who was also a very famous actor related to John Wilkes, and we all know how we know him, <laughs> um, he had owned this Players Club as a house and lived in the apartment upstairs. And when he died, his the only two things he wanted were that he uh, die in or the the apartment that he lived in not be touched. And that the house always remained a club for the for the arts community, and it still exists today. I was a member. It like you can go see the apartment yourself. It's very cool, um, very very death centric. Like his his slippers are still next to his bed where he died. It's crazy. Wow, it's wild. So Sarah Bernhardt was very macabre. She slept in a coffin, famously. Like she's kind of a, a weirdo. And she wanted to see this apartment where this very famous actor that she worked with and respected died. Uh, not worked with, sorry, disrespected and looked up to. And so she, it, it was a men's only club and they didn't allow women inside. So they made an exception. They rolled out the red carpet. She came in. She got into the elevator to go up to the top floor to see the apartment and the elevator broke. Wow. And so, it's, and if you see this elevator, it is like two by two, it is so tiny. Like, it might have fit one or two people, if you're lucky. Yeah. So she's stuck in this elevator for, like, two hours, 
until the fire department is able to get there and kind of hack her out. Now, keep in mind, this is like 1911, so everything works, <laughs> like moves at a snail's pace. And she's in this elevator. She's so embarrassed and so mad about this whole situation that she just storms out of the Players Club and never comes back. So she never got to see the apartment. She never got to do what she wanted to do. She just left. Um, and so my friend Taylor wrote this this uh, screenplay about these two women of the time who are huge Sarah Bernhardt fans and want to go meet her. But because they only let men in the club, they devise this plan to dress up like men in their brother's clothes and they run down to Gramercy Park to sneak into the Players Club to meet her. <laughs> That's awesome. It's really fun. It's yeah. such a good... The, the writing is spectacular. Like It's already won awards for scripts and, recognize, wow. and writing and all that. So it's going to be a thing, and we're so excited about it. Edward, I'm so glad I asked, and I'm so glad that you are alive and you're kicking, and let us know when it comes out. And it was a total pleasure to meet you. You're a very interesting person, and uh, you have a great attitude, and I'm glad that you are here walking among us as one of the good people. To everyone else listening at home, uh, please head over to MikeyUp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com, and sign up for free for the weekly newsletter that also has the podcast in it. And uh, as always, we appreciate you listening. My name is Mike Oppenheim. This has been another episode of Coffin Talk, and we will see you soon. Don't you see me and I see you hear the